Chapter Thirty Four of The Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty Four. The snow had thawed early in the fjord that year. In the lowlands, the fields were already being harrowed, and women might often be seen upon the beach, shading their eyes with their hands and looking down the fjord for the glimpse of a sail. No one could see past Blue Hill, however, and so the children were sent up the rocks, for there they could see a long way, right out to the Blue Sea. No one had received any tidings, no one knew anything definite, but it was the time when the Lofoten men might be expected. One wife rubbed her nose and said that Ola would be home soon because her nose itched. Another said she had had such a lifelike dream that they were coming, and a third felt it in her bones. To make sure of being ready in time, they began scrubbing and cleaning the little cottages, chopping up juniper twigs with which to strew the floor, and putting clean sheets on the beds. And it would not be amiss either to give a little cleaning to oneself, for perhaps it had not been done quite lately. Even Andreas Ekra's wife, Anna Marta, clambered down from her loom and said, Damn! and began a thorough cleaning. She had, it was true, sworn that she would make up a bed for Andreas in the cowshed when he came back, because he never sent her a line from Lofoten all the winter. But the sun was shining so brightly, and the magpie and the starling were chattering around the house and building their nests, and all that sort of thing is infectious. Anna Marta bustled about and swore that those who had common sense should use it. It was quite likely that Andreas had not been very warm and dry this winter, either. And when the cottage was ready and the bed made up, she went along the beach, like the others, to look down the fjord and wait. Up in a little red-painted cottage, pretty Berit Hulla was sweeping and scrubbing, and had never been busier in her life. Her husband's coffin had come home during the winter, and he was laid in the churchyard. One thing was certain, and that was that he would never beat her again. But now, when the other wives were cleaning and tidying and expecting their husbands, she involuntarily began to do the same. When the house was clean and tidy both outside and in, she washed the children and dressed them in their Sunday clothes, and sat down for a few minutes to talk to them about their father. She could not, of course, be expecting in the same way that the others were, but nevertheless, when she saw the neighbor's children come flying down the hill, all trying to be first, she knew that they must have seen sails far down the fjord, and the next moment she had begun to make herself tidy. She scrubbed herself thoroughly, and then, standing in the sunshine, let down her thick, red-gold hair, plaited it, and twisted it into a knot, low down at the back of her head. When this was done, she put on a clean chemise and a red petticoat, and over all a dress of blue home-woven material, and then seated herself at the window with her youngest child and her lap to watch, she too, for sales. Old Ula Gumon, at the little farm up among the hills, had become very infirm of late. Things did not always go well when one could no longer see well enough to be able to work, and he would sit all day by the stove, constantly replenishing it, and gazing into the flames. 
he had now quite made up his mind that when Cornelis came back from Lofoten he would speak seriously to him and tell him he must get married. If he would go to the fisheries he must, at any rate, see that there was a grown-up woman in the house. And besides, it would be a good thing if the children came while he, the old man, was able to rock the cradle. Rock the cradle, yes. Ha, ha. Many an evening this winter he had sat gazing into the stove, humming to himself and saying, Hush, hush. The snow still lay deep up on the hills, but one day a starling stood whistling upon the roof. This roused the old man. A starling, he said. Then the Lofoten men must be on their way home. He groped his way to the door. The sun was shining and the ewes were dripping. He made his way to the big birch tree that stood at the corner of the house and felt that there was sap in its bark. Lina, he called to the girl as she came from the cowshed. Go and see if there are any Lofoten sails on the fjord. Very well, father, but... Now, just go at once. The pale young girl took what she was carrying into the house, and then went up the hill. Her father knew well that Cornelis would not be coming, for the priest had been up some time ago and told them so as gently as he could, but the old man's mind was failing, and he had forgotten it already. Occasionally an uneasy feeling would take possession of him, and he would gaze at her in fear, and ask if it were true or only a bad dream, for he had dreamed something dreadful about Cornelis in the night. And then he would dismiss it from his thoughts and feel for his pipe. No, he was quite determined that Cornelis should marry, and marry soon, too. A day or two later he insisted on going up on the hill, where he had stood many a time when he still had his eyesight and gazed out toward the sea. His daughter only made him angry by refusing to take him, and so she led him past the worst snowdrifts and found a good place on a rocky knoll for him to stand. The wind blew through his long white hair and beard as he stood. He wore a faded red-pointed woolen cap on his head, and upon his back his braces were crossed over a thick knitted woolen vest. The weather was so warm that he did not even need a waistcoat. The young girl standing beside him, bareheaded, was thin and pale from her lonely life with too much work, and from sorrow for the brother whom she would never see again. She looked at the fjord far below, between lowlands and mountains, broad and blue in the north wind and the sunshine. Far out toward the sea rose bare mountains, with the snow upon their long undulating ridges looking yellow and red in the sunshine. When she turned, she saw the same fjord in another direction, and here it was gradually merged in a yellowish mist. Far within it lay the town that she longed to see some day. "'Do you see any boats?' asked the old man as he shaded his eyes with his hand from long habit and looked in the right direction. Yes, no, it's a steamer, and then there is a ship, but I don't see any Lofoten boats. Ah, the old man grew irritable. They can't be far off now. You must look more carefully. Yes, but you'd better come home with me now, father. We can come up here another time. No, we'll wait a little longer. 
but you'll have the house to tidy up, and I suppose you've got a clean shirt for Cornelis. Oh, yes, but... The girl turned and moved away a little. What are you crying for, girl? Are you ill? Oh, no, father. She dried her eyes well enough for her to see the fjord again, and suddenly began to gaze intently. Far out a sail had come into sight, a tall square sail, and there was another. One was white, and the other was tanned, and there came yet another. They were coming up the fjord with the infjord wind. Still more appeared, a number altogether, and now there was no doubt as to there being Lofoten boats. She made an exclamation. What is it? Can you see anything? Yes, now, they're coming now. No, really? Are they really coming? Can you see them plainly? Yes, they're coming now. Ha, <laughs> ha, yes, of course, there they come. And the old man shaded his eyes with his hand and gazed, too, but it was only recollections of former days that he saw. He had stood here many a time when his sight had been different from what it was now, and he could see the blue fjord and all the bright sails, and Cornelis was on one of those boats. It was all a memory, but to him it was as clear as daylight. "'They won't take long now to come up the fjord,' he said, with such a wind. "'Hurry up and get the house made straight, girl, and you must make yourself tidy, and I expect I need a good wash too. Come along.' We must hurry. The young girl did not dare to oppose him, and she felt she could not remind him of what he knew as well as she did. He was getting old. So she tidied the house and then attended to her father, who declared he would put on his Sunday clothes. If only he had not taken it into his head that he would go down to the shore to meet Cornelis. He made her harness the little dun fjord horse that had been in the stable all the winter, because there had been no one to use it. They had meant to sell it in the autumn, but Cornelis had been fond of it. She gave in to her father at last, for there would be no harm in meeting the other men and hearing what they had to tell about her brother, and besides they would have brought his chest with them and perhaps some clothes. The ragged little horse was almost blinded by the light when it emerged from the dark stable. She harnessed it to the sledge, however, and then, dressed in a cloak that had been her mother's and with two thin yellow plates hanging down her back, drove down the hills, her father sitting with his back to the horse, holding on. When they reached the lowlands they had to leave the sledge and borrow a cart. People looked after them as they drove along. They guessed where the old man was going. The same bright, mild weather continued, and people were watching from more than twenty cottages along the shore when the first boat came round the headland. Strange to say, Andreas Egra had not arrived yet, but God's ways are wonderful. At Folla a wave had beaten in his waterboard, and he had to go ashore and patch it up so every one understood that it had been so ordained by providence in order that he should not arrive before the others. Several sails appeared, making straight up the fjord for the districts higher up, but one turned in. It was the sea-fire, 
Peter Susanza's boat, and as the first Lofoten boat came over the bay, it seemed to the people standing on the beach that she had come on a visit to them all. The next was Andreas Ekra on the Stormbird. People recognized the boat and said that was Andreas. He drew in the sheet and rounded the headland so close-hauled that the water foamed around him. Then came another, the seal, and as she had to go in farthest she made a wider turn with well-filled sails and the spray dashing from her bows. And last of all came one with tanned sails, making so sharp a turn that the water seethed around her. This was the sea-flower. Every one was walking or running down from the cottages, the children flying past the old folk, hobbling along with sticks. The beach round the grey boathouses was black with people when the boats turned, the sails were lowered, the grapnel splashed into the sea, and the first small boat came rowing into land. To a man who had been away for a long time and was now rowing in toward it, the beach was like an old friend. The sand was washed by the sea and dried by the sun and the wind, and at the top of the slope, nearest the grass, lay a line of brown seaweed. As Christaver stepped out upon the sand, he was met by his old mother. It was not the first time she had welcomed her son home, but every time it was as if he came as a gift from God and from the sea. The weather-beaten man would have shaken hands with her, but the child was already hanging on to each of his hands, and he walked up the beach with them. He had seen Maria with the youngest child on her arm up by the boathouse, and supposed she did not want to push herself forward, but she was the principal person for him today. She was looking at him with frightened eyes. He had come back to her once more— but what was the good of that if he was going away again next winter? This was only like a visit. Kristavish's face was all smiles. So much had happened since they had parted, and he would have liked to put his arms around her and tell her that it was splendid of her to manage everything so well while he was away. But there were so many people about. Good day, was all he said, adding, You've come down with all the family. Yes, good day, she replied with a smile. Welcome home. Thank you, he said, and tried to take the baby's tiny hand in his. How big and rough his hand looked beside the little white baby hand. I believe you're afraid of your own father, Christopher said. Have you forgotten me? Yes, he really has. And he laughed as the child screamed and clung to his mother's neck. Lars had to go back with the boat to fetch the others. He had imagined that he would be the centre of this homecoming, and after all he was nothing. It was father, nothing but father, all the time. And as to Olaf, why, he had come and pretended that they two were equals. But the boy would have to understand that in the future he must give way in everything to his elder brother, who was a Lofoten man. Henry Robbins' tall, pretty wife wore a black dress with a bright-colored kerchief on her head, and when Henry came toward her, he was overcome with shyness at the sight of her beauty. Gurina Oson had brought a can of coffee for Arndt, and she at once took him behind the boathouse so he could have something hot to drink. 
There was no embrace, no shaking of hands. The two simply stood looking at one another from a little distance, and then smiled, and tried to say something commonplace. "'You're out in this fine weather, are you?' he said. And she replied by saying, "'Yes, and you're sailing?' Perhaps their breath came a little more quickly than usual, and there was a peculiar brightness in their faces. A whole winter had passed, and they had gone through experiences of one kind and another, both she who had been left at home, and he who had been away. There was an old toothless woman waiting too, the wife of Elias Flata, whom Christavet had taken on for the last of their time up north. The bow-legged old man of seventy wanted to show off to his old woman, and trudged about the beach, in Elias's hillas, sea-boots, and found all manner of things to see to. Surely the old woman did not suppose that he had time to stand shaking hands and saying, Good day and welcome home. He was a Lofoten man again, and had to look after everything. While the people were still standing about, two children came running down a path, followed by a woman who called to them to come back and go home. The children, however, were determined to go down to the beach, like all the others, and now people saw that they were Lesus Hilla's children, a boy and a little girl, of five or six. They were down before their mother could catch them, and bedded herself almost without knowing how she came there, found herself in the midst of the throng. Anna, Peter, come with me now, she called in despair. A silence fell upon those standing near her, and they all looked at the children. Berit raised her head, and her glance passed from one to another, until it rested upon the headman, as if there were something she wanted to ask him about. People forgot what they were doing to look at this pretty young woman with the golden hair, and when the little girl asked, "'Where's father?' a thrill passed through them. At last the old woman from Miran went up to her and said, "'Poor little thing, your father'll be coming soon.' And their mother, holding a child by the hand on each side of her, began to retrace her steps. On seeing this, Christaver followed her, and when she turned he held out his hand. A solemn silence fell on all around, and they heard him say, "'Well, well, Berit.' Things'll all come right, you'll see. The tears came into her eyes, but she only asked if they had Elesus's provision chest with them, and Lash, who then came up, promised to wheel it out to her sometime that evening. As she went slowly up the path with the two children, many a gaze followed her, but she did not look back. Busy youngsters were occupied in carrying things up from the boat. It was no easy matter to drag along father's leather trousers or oilskin coat. Just as they were about to separate and go home, a cart drawn by a small horse came down the road. A young girl was sitting in front, driving, and behind sat an old man with white hair and beard, holding on tightly. The girl's face wore a faint smile, as if in apology for coming. They stopped and the girl got down and held the horse's head while the old man clambered down from the cart. Considering what her father was like, the girl could see now what a mistake it was for them to have come. "'Is that you, Ola?' said Christaver, going up to the old man, 
but his features were drawn as if with pain, and he was as pale as it was possible for a weather-beaten fisherman to be. He stood before the father of the man of whom he had let go that night they were shipwrecked on the West Fjord. The old half-blind man was now wearing his broad-brimmed black church hat. His coat of homespun was quite short, and had silver buttons both in front and behind. He came straight up to Kristaver, with his stick in his hand. "'Good day,' he said cheerfully. "'So here you are, then. It is you, I suppose, Kristaver. <laughs> ah, well, it's not the first winter you've sailed, is it?' He stopped and leaned upon his stick. "'Well, well, but where's Cornelis?' No one replied, and from where the horse was standing a girl's voice was heard calling, "'Father! Father! Come here!' The old man looked round. "'Come here,' he said, imitating her. "'Aren't you able to hold that little horse, a strong girl like you?' And he turned to Christavre again. "'Yes. What's become of Cornelis? Hasn't he come ashore yet?' He waited for a little while, and then went on again. "'He surely hasn't got hold of a woman already, has he? <laughs> but they're always running after that boy. But what's he like at sea? He's a good seaman, isn't he?' One or two women sighed and slipped away, and gradually the sight of this old man with the red-rimmed, half-blind eyes standing and asking after his son made them all silent and anxious to slink away. Cornelis, yes, said Christaver at length, looking down at the sand, but he bit his lip and got no further. Aren't you here then, boy? The old man became impatient and began looking round him and calling, Cornelis! Then, turning in the direction in which he supposed the boat lay, he called more loudly, Cornelis, are you still on board? There was no answer. But then Christaver's mother went up to the old man. Poor Ola, she said, have you forgotten what the priest came and told you? The old man passed his hand over his eyes. The priest, he said, yes, yes, I seem to have dreamed something about, is it true that, that Cornelis was drowned? You're the head man, Christaver. You must know all about it. What's become of Cornelis? Father, cried the young girl once more. Father, come here. Yes, Cornelis was drowned, said Christaver, sadly. We thought you knew about it. The old man tried to collect his thoughts and to see from the faces of those he was speaking to what this really meant. He rubbed his eyes and strove to rouse recollection, and blurred memories of a bad dream returned. But was it anything more than a dream about Cornelis? Was it, was it true? Well, well, he said at last, looking up and holding on to his hat as if he had been in a wind. Well, well, so that's how it is. It was the greatest effort Christavid could ever remember having to make when he took the old man's hand and said, as he pressed it, It was God's will, Ola, and if there is anything we can help you with now, 
you can rely upon us. Ah, ah, that's how it is done. Well, well. And he turned to his daughter again. Lena, we may as well go back. Cornelis won't be coming with us. The few people now remaining separated and went to their respective cottages. Christavid walked with heavy steps, and yet, and yet, that cottage was his home. The young girl and her old father drove away through the lowland district. They had Cornelis's chest with them, and a bundle of clothes upon which the old man sat, with his back to the horse, holding on with both hands. He had already forgotten what had taken place down on the beach, and recollections from previous years were all that remained in his mind. Every now and then, as they went up a hill, he would say, "'Aren't we soon on the flat, Lena, so that Cornelis can get up?' Farther on they had to exchange the cart for the sledge again, and they then drove on up the hills in the blue twilight. The old man chattered all the time about Cornelis. "'I'll say it to him this very evening,' he said. He must get married now while I'm still able to look after the children a little. Oh, yes, I can see well enough to rock a cradle. The little horse was pulling sturdily up the hills, and the young girl, sitting behind it in her mother's cloak, holding the reins, was thinking what good friends Dunny and Cornelis had been, and that she would give the horse an extra good feed when they reached home. The wide blue fjords sank lower and lower as they climbed, and the white ridges of the west mountains grew rosy red in the glow of the sunset. On the waters of the bay, not far from land, lay the stately Lufthansa boats, with their white sheer strakes, high rigging, and red pennons. They had returned from a long voyage, and now lay there peacefully, as if after a battle. There was still a man on board the sea flower, and it was the head man himself, Jakob. He was rummaging about in the cabin, making himself tidy. He washed his face in a bucket of sea water and dried it on an old blouse, and then combed his thick hair and beard with his fingers. The shaggy sea bear was making himself spruce, and tomorrow perhaps he would go to the length of shaving his upper lip. The kettle was sputtering on the little stove, and he meant, when he had had a good meal of salt pork, bread, and sausage, to make himself a coffee doctor and smoke a pipe of shag. Things of this sort never taste so well as when you've just come home. Tomorrow he would go to bed and sleep for a week, and then he would go to town and sell his cod liver and go on a spree. If he got away from that with the whole skin, he would sail back again beach the sea-flower, and clean and paint her so that she would look like a bride, after which he would creep into the cabin to sleep until the following winter, when he could set out on a new Lofoten voyage. That was his life. Home? Well, had he not sailed his hardest all those miles, and then there was not a soul to meet him on the beach and bid him welcome? Perhaps not, but home is a strange thing. The men that had gone to their cottages to wives and children would be washed by women's hands and have good food and a soft bed. That was the way they liked to have things. But Jacob was no worse off in his way than they. 
When his meal was finished, he went out and sat on a thwart with his pipe and his coffee doctor, looking landward. It was beautiful in the bay now. The black cock was courting in the woods. The moon was scattering silver gleams upon the water, and the lights in the cottage windows blinked at him. There was a headland on each side of the bay, and they had been his friends ever since he was a boy. And now he could sit here and look at them once more. Home! The two headlands said to him, Welcome home, Jacob. When the snow is melting on the hills, a brook generally begins to run up in the glen. There it is. He can hear the same trickling that he has often heard before. Home, it says. Later, when it is quite dark, with only the moon shining, the waves, too, begin to croon and sing upon the beach. Home! they say, and make a little song about it, and he sits and listens to it. Yes, it is wonderful how everything seems to know that this evening Jakob has come home at last. End of chapter 34